online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Welcome to Flavor Talks with Bella Zoo. I'm Robert Kirbishley. Bella Zoo's new podcast, Flavor Talks, is all about extraordinary and uncompromised flavor. We'll be chatting to our long-standing suppliers, creative chef customers, inspiring influencers, and some of the UK's leading food experts to share adventures and stories behind our favorite ingredients, giving you an insight into our world of food. This week on Bella Zoo Flavor Talks, we have the pleasure of chatting to Peter Butler, founder and director of Dishpatch, the restaurant meal company, and also Karan Gukhani, founder and director Director of Hopper's Restaurant, who serves Sri Lankan and South Indian cuisine. We'll be talking about regionality in Indian restaurants and how that's changing. Peter takes us through the genesis of Dispatch and how it started as a response to COVID lockdowns. And the pair discuss collaborations and what we should expect from restaurant meals where we do part of the cooking. Hello and welcome to Bella Zoo Flavor Talks, and uh, I'm delighted this week to welcome Peter Butler, who is the co-founder and director of Dishpatch, who are a supplier of restaurant meal kits. We've also got uh, Karan Gakani, who is the founder director of Hopper's Restaurant. Hopper's do Sri Lankan and South Indian food. Hello there, Karan. Hello, Bob, and hi, Pete. Uh, so I'm Karan Gokani and uh, creative director of Hoppers. I co-founded it with um, my family who happened to be JKS restaurants. We've got about 18 and counting restaurants at the moment across London. We opened Hoppers in 2015 with Soho being our first site. I'll be very honest with you. At that point, you know, we wanted to bring Sri Lankan food. But we wanted to bring South Indian food like it hadn't been seen before in, in central London to a London location. We got a great site on Frith Street. We honestly had no idea what the experience is going to be like. We knew the menu really well. We had done all the tastings. Front of house, we were in a space in the market where you know things were either fine dine Indian or very casual street food. We wanted to hit sort of somewhere in between those two, create an experience like people would have in our homes, quite literally speaking. I know a lot of people say that, but that kind of warmth, that kind of you know stepping off the streets into something that's really immersive. Yeah. And um, and luckily, we had a queue out the door on day one, uh, a very long queue, which we then had to manage. And we went off to a, a virtual queuing platform. Um, and then ever since then, it's been there's been no looking back. We've had a phenomenal sort of team that's a lot of the team has stayed on with us. We've grown a lot. We opened Marlebone in 2018, a much larger site. But again, like I said, not a chain. We kind of took different references from Sri Lanka. Our menu is about 70% the same, but it's a different feel. Uh, And then our most uh, recent one was largest and most ambitious site in King's Cross, um, just off Goods Way in 2020, about a month and a half before pandemic shut, uh, the pandemic shut everything down. So um, we had an amazing sort of start there and then quite an impressive stop and start. And now luckily things seem to be, you know, back to normal. But during that time when we were sort of shut with a brand new, with with a full team to sort of look after uh, is when we got creative and launched Cash and Carry, but I'll come to that in a moment. Um, yeah, well, we're, well it's still, we're going to talk more about, about the restaurants and about uh, Cash and Carry. Uh, but Pete, if you would like to introduce yourself. Sure, so I'm Pete. I'm a co-founder and CEO of a company called Dishbatch. So we started pretty much two years ago at the start of the pandemic. Originally, basically, we knew lots of people in the industry. They were forced to close, as Karen said, uh, and were looking for new ways to um, get their food to customers' homes because they needed to do that. We saw that some restaurants, people like Pizza Pilgrims, Patties at Bum, were doing these things called restaurant meal kits, where they were putting their food basically in a box, shipping it across the UK. The customers were heating up and finishing it at home. We thought, 
this looks like a great idea. More restaurants should be doing this, but it's obviously going to be pretty hard for people to do this themselves. So we thought, well, what can we do to help help restaurants enter this market? Um, so we started Dispatch. We were originally only planned to do it throughout the pandemic um, as a way to help restaurants. Uh, I called a friend of mine who uh, is called Farouk Talati. He's a chef. He runs a supper club. And I said, Look, why don't you cook some food? We'll, we'll, we'll put it in a box. We'll send it out across the UK. And we'll do it for a few weeks. And that'll keep you busy. That was a massive success. Um, we've gone from one restaurant to we now work with 30 restaurants. And yeah, what we do is we, we work with amazing people, including Karen, including Hoppers. And we help these restaurants to send their food to every home in the UK in the form of restaurant markets. So obviously restaurants are open, but you know we see this as being a really, really big um, category and, and, and massive new thing going forward. Well, we're definitely going to... We've, we've, I've, I've got about two uh, pages, two and a half pages of questions, and that is definitely one of the ones that's going to come up about the future of it. Karan, let's, let's just get stuck straight in. So each restaurant is different. Each restaurant has its own personality that, the, of the three that you have. That's right. I think I think the best sort of analogy is uh, is a family, and and you know when you look at siblings, when you look at them long enough, sometimes unless they're identical twins, even then the personalities are so different. When you look at them long enough, you see similarities and resemblances. And I've got two sons, and I feel the same way. There's definitely a resemblance, but they're both so different. And I think that's we we adapt ourselves to the neighborhood we're in. Uh, I learned that early on, uh, where you know we kind of wanted to replicate Soho when we opened Marlebone. And I had a very, have, still have, he's our ops manager, Savio, very close to him. And, you know, he had recently joined us from a somewhat fine dining background. He worked in Hopper's Soho. For me, Hopper's Soho was a place uh, where we could get in talent that was enthusiastic, excited, part-time actors, uh, career changers. It was a great platform for them to come and learn hospitality and just bring their personality to the to the room where you didn't need to have, you know, very strong um uh, uh, you know, restaurant waitering skills. And those guys really shown. I kind of wanted to copy that model of service and bring it to Malibon, which is a much larger site over two floors with some sort of semi-private rooms at the back. And Savio and I always fought about it. He's like, no, you can't do this. You need to run this more like a conventional restaurant with service that's different. It's a different locality. And lo and behold, you know, I hired a team, fought with him, kind of prevailed, hired a team. And in three, four weeks of opening, actually even before opening, a lot of them left because they're like, we can't hack this. And Savio kind of proved himself to be correct. He hired a very different team with the same hospitality and love for what they were doing, but, you know, different background. And Mm -hmm. that was a huge learning experience because even our demographic, although it's, you know, less than a kilometer and a half half, uh, away from each other, Soho and Malibu, the demographic is quite different. The people come in expecting something different. The site uh, is designed very differently. So kind of, you know, plays with your head in terms of expectations. And it just became really fun. So when we did King's Ross, we said, okay, clean slate, let's approach this like it's a brand new restaurant, although the only thing we have for us is sort of menu and some design elements. And I think that that's great because it keeps us fresh in our heads. It uh, keeps us innovating, even though, you know, menus similar. We don't like to do the whole copy paste, otherwise you lose your essence. And I think um, it just challenges you. So. King's Ross was, again, very different references from Sri Lanka. I took the team and we spent a month in um, Sri Lanka traveling around, developing a video. If you look back at Instagram, both my personal as well as Hoppers, you'll see a lot of you know stuff from our, from our travel travels across, even to get inspiration from King's Cross, when it was very easy to just have said, let's just take the best of Malibu and Soho and create a new site, mix and match them and sort of do a new site. But we didn't. 
And I think that's really paid off. It's kept it fresh. People who come to, you know, who come for the first time can't even imagine that this is a group. They think it's one independent restaurant. And that's the feel we want to have. Our teams are different. There's a little overlap. We're thinking more like a group, but um, still we kind of keep them competing and playing with each other. And this is an impossible question, but I'm going to be, I'm going to ask it anyway. How different is Sri, is Sri Lankan food to, to the generic kind of Indian food offered? I mean, not just generic then, how uh, regional-wise, uh, regional how different is Sri Lankan South Indian mm. food to, say, Gujarat or, or Himal Pradesh, um, you know, those more northern, uh, northern areas? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where's your wife from? Uh, well, she, we, well, she we was... She, she, where's where's she, her family from? I'm sorry. Uh, well, that's a, a real old mixture. Um, so very, very quickly, her her her, her mum was... Uh, is, it, is it Himal or Himachal Pradesh? Which one Himachal, is it? okay. Lovely food Himal- from the next world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, her, so she grew up in the foothills of the Himalayas. Her dad's more complicated. Uh, grew up in Burma, chased out by the Japanese in 1941 or two. Uh, wow. Ancestral home is uh, Lahore. And then we can all guess what's coming next. So partition, he ended up in New yeah. Delhi. So he's from all over the place. But some amazing food locations there. I mean, mm. Kashmir, Kashmiri food is something that hasn't been tapped. My friend, very good friend of mine, Romy Gill, has just written uh, an amazing book on Kashmiri food. You know, again, that's regional food I've eaten a little bit of in India, but, you know, I wish there was more of. But, you know, to answer your question, South India is, again, a very broad brush term. But like mm-hmm. I said, we, we focus on Tamil food, a very sort of small drop of Tamil food, very small sort of... Uh, representation of Kerelan food. Again, these cuisines are so deep. They've got so much that it's almost unfair to say we have we represent them. We represent a very small percentage of what we found there. Both very even when you go across north, south, uh, you know, east and west of South India, that little peninsula, uh, the cuisine changes so dramatically. The, the the level of spicing changes. The your complex sort of we've got nothing like curry powder in India, but we've got complex powders. Uh, mm-hmm. mixtures of spices roasted to different levels that uh, are used for specific dishes or genres of dishes. And even those change across South India, uh, across east to west. Then when you sort of move across to this tiny little island, Sri Lanka, which is smaller than some of the many of the states in India, you see that there's a, at least, especially in the north, there's a Tamil influence uh, because that's where a lot of the Tamil Tamilian population moved across generations ago. And, you know, Jaffna, one of my favorite parts of the country, has food that's very akin to Tamil Nadu and you know, Kerala in many ways. It's a lot hotter. Their Jaffna curry, curry powder, uh, powder has more, you know, things like fennel in it, has a lot more chili. Um, they tend to do food with less, you know, less of that creamy coconut milk. And then you move down south where you've got the Sinhalese influence and the food changes uh, dramatically. It won't, I won't say it's as dramatic as, say, North and South India because obviously yeah. it's a tiny country, but there is a marked difference. And what I've found in the Sinhalese food is there's a, there's a marked sort of influence from Southeast Asia, which I find very interesting. Things like pandan leaf, lemongrass, they make an appearance um, in the food here. And they don't make it as much as prominently in, let's say, food from South India. Or again, I speak very broadly of South India. But, you know, Kerala food for me has been quite different. And I think it's those things like the, the, ar- the aromatics and herbs from Southeast Asia that make this quite different. Peter, you, you've already answered my first question, which was, uh, I've got written down, did you start just before or as a result of the pandemic? But, but you started purely as a result of the pandemic to to enable restaurants to, to, to keep afloat, in effect. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we were not planning to do this. I was actually, I was kind of between, I mean, I've been working at the restaurant industry for the past 10 years, so 
I've run events, I've helped set up restaurants. So restaurants is the space that I love and it's a space that I know really well. I'm, I'm a bit of an operator. Like I love like figuring out how we make things work and, and, and doing kind of that side of things. Um, I was actually between, I didn't really have anything on at the, at the beginning of the pandemic. And so pandemic happened and just so many people I knew in the industry, it was just well, like, this is the craziest thing. You know, every single restaurant in the UK has been forced to close. No one's had, you know, people have got stock available. No one's had any notice. No one's expecting this thing. And people are like, well, what can we do? We need to keep operating. We need to keep selling product. Hot food delivery, you know, people working with delivery will just eat. It works for some products. It doesn't work for everyone. Um, not every kind of cuisine travels well on the back of the scooter. And, you know, if you're a really well-known restaurant, you probably have people that love your product that live all over the UK, not necessarily one or two miles from your restaurant. Um, so they're like, well, we don't really want to do this. What else can we do? Um, and yet, you know, we, we, like I said, we've seen restaurant meal kits. They're not as easy as they look to execute. There's a little bit more to them, particularly with the packaging and the logistics. You know, sending things in the post is not easy. And that's where I was like, well, you know what? I love operations. There's definitely something we could do to help here. Like, let, let's jump in and, um, and, and see if we can make something happen. And, and like I said, we were not necessarily expecting this thing to be long-term, but as soon as we started doing it, we realized that this was really, really interesting. This definitely works for restaurants. It really, really works for consumers. And this is, this is going to last well beyond the pandemic. If, the, if this had happened 15 years ago, uh, none of it could have really existed. I mean, it would have been a very different landscape, I think. I mean, I... I, I can't imagine how restaurants would have got out of this i mean it's it's a in many ways it's a blessing that that we had online shopping we had convenience we had kind of health meals you know there are companies that have been doing that for for a little while but i mean the the genesis of home meals i mean um i suppose they they did exist before uh before lockdown um but, but but the idea of that there's kind of a functional meal which people were doing uh so the, the idea of sort of taking over from takeaways and uh allowing you to cook it yourself so it's fresher it's less wasteful but did what dispatch is doing did, did it did it exist in any form before lockdown not really i mean this is this is what's so interesting and why we're so excited about this in the long term so it didn't really exist you know you Food has been coming into the home, and restaurants have been coming into the home for a few years. If you look seven or eight years ago, almost no restaurant had a takeaway operation. You know, people were 100% in restaurant sales. People like delivery came along, and more people started to do hot food delivery. But that was really the only channel. Um, you know, some, if you're Jamie Oliver, you might brand a product and you, you sell that in Tesco's or Waitrose. But that was kind of it. And... And, and, and the pandemic really forced people to innovate. I think that was one of the most amazing things about that time period was people were like, well, we've got to do something. What can we do? And it seems obvious. Restaurant makers seem obvious now. It seems obvious. Well, of course, like, let's just put our food, you know, let, 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 let's send it out cold. It means we can send it everywhere. And all you've got to do to reheat it. That, that, that's kind of, it's a very obvious thing. You're like, why didn't anyone think about this before? But I think... You know, if we turned around to Karen two years ago and said, hey, Karen, are we going to put your food in the post? That's like, that's a crazy idea. Like, never doing that. But it I think ironically, ironically, I was I was very keen to do something like that well before the pandemic. And, and I'll tell you about that more once you're done. But um, 
I, I think it's you know it's a it's a no brainer. I'll, I'll explain the rationale behind that, which I think you guys at Dispatch have just nailed on the head. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess the other thing is you know why did people not do this before is that running a restaurant is really really hard. Like you're really really busy, and and Karen, kind of maybe you're right. Like lots of people have sort of thought about doing these kind of things and thought about retail and thought about like how do they send food out cold rather than hot but it is so hard when you're running a restaurant to do anything other than run that restaurant and the pandemic kind of created this space and opportunity for really creative people and hospitality is full of amazing entrepreneurial like creative people that are in these businesses and it created the time and space and obviously the necessity to do something new and that's when restaurant meal kits like were formed they didn't exist um, and, and, and now they're a thing that everyone knows and, and hopefully they're going to stay around for a long time. So I think, you know, my personal view on restaurants has always been that, you know, people think restaurants are about food. Um, and that's a standard thing. When I train my staff, I always tell them when guests walk out, nine or ten will say, oh, wow, the food was amazing. But what they actually mean was the entire experience was amazing. One of my greatest idols in, in the restaurant world is someone called Danny Meyer. He's, you know, prolific uh, restaurant here in America. He's now even a good friend. He's the founder of Shake Shack, amongst many other things. He's written a book called Setting the Table, which I can't recommend enough. We buy a copy for most managers who start at Hoppers. Um, and he talks about hospitality being at the core of what we do, about the experience being far more important than the food. The food is a given. It's a must. Without a menu, you're not going to have a restaurant. And, you know, one would assume you've done a really good menu, otherwise you have no legs to stand on. But what really differentiates restaurants and why people come out to dine is because you're being looked after. There's an element of, you know, someone thinking about the little details for you, whether it's the sound, the the lighting, the experience. And, you know, I think, Bob, you mentioned earlier, you use the that term functional because hot food delivery has always been functional. You know, it's it's amazing how much my wife and I tend to order hot food delivery. You'd think we, you know, we'd cook. But when you're hungry, when you've come home, you're hungry, you put the kids to bed. You you don't want to then sit and cook a meal, even if it's as amazing as a meal it is, as it is from, you know, dish patch um, or even a quick serve pasta. Sometimes you just want, want that hot food delivered. Mm. And that's where, you know, the big players like Deliveroo and the typical sort of hot food comes in. But I've always found that that's only delivering about 30% of the overall restaurant experience at best. And for me, you know, it's just never been an exciting area. We do Deliveroo uh, again to sort of, you know, um, and and we've done delivery both on, on various channels in the past purely to satisfy that, you know, people want that food. Yes, we'll deliver the food and we'll try and do the best we can there. But something has always been missing. And the the pandemic gave us that opportunity to suddenly bring an experience to your home. So in fact, when we first launched Cash and Curry, so it's we've always spelled curry at the restaurant K-A-R-I, which is which a lot of people sort of come and pronounce as curry. So it was a tongue-in-cheek sort of version of that. And we said, Hopper's Cash and Curry. Uh, it was, um, we went and did a full rebrand. And the whole idea was to create a new sub-brand within Hoppers that could just go off and do different things that aren't linked necessarily to Hoppers. Obviously, the meal kits are one of them, but we do spices, we do uh, we do drinks, we do all kinds of stuff on the platform. And when we launched that, it was this amazing opportunity. And again, in the middle of adversity, we said, how do we take some of that restaurant experience? You know, those touch points. And, you know, obviously, you're not sending a waiter home to deliver it or, and, and serve you that food, but there's, there's much more to it. There's, there's 
you know, uh, there's an intellectual engagement with what you're doing and how do we bring that to the table? At that point, people were free. They were missing an experience. A lot of them wanted to become chefs. So actually our menu, our, our kits at that point were completely wrong. We added extra elements to them to make it seem more fun and interactive because we knew people were getting together to do these dinner parties, to come together, to actually enjoy both the process of putting the meal on the table and enjoying that meal. A bit like, you know, I would do normally because I just love cooking. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a cook. I love creating food. My wife does that, but not every home does that. Not every home has the knowledge and the ability to do that. So we went from doing a completely sort of, let's say a completely raw dish with raw meat, a marinade separately, uh, you know, packaged, three garnishes, two other steps in the thing, which would take about five pots or pans to cook and people had the time to do it. To, to moving into something that's, you know, snip out of the bag, put into a plate, but you still have a butter to baste while you're, while you're cooking that chicken. You still have a garnish to put on top, but it's more one plate, less involved and quicker to produce, if that makes any sense. No, it, it, makes, um, it makes absolute sense. But I mean, it seemed like everyone had the same idea at the same time. You know how like, with, a, with a thunderstorm, you, you, everyone thinks that wherever they are, you, you know, you, you, there's, a, there's a strike of lightning and you think kind of that's it. But when you pull back from it, what you don't see is the fact that, that that lightning kind of triggers off sort of 20 other sort of bolts of lightning over a massive kind of area. And that's, that's kind of how it felt, that like everyone had this same idea at the same time. So how the hell are we going to save the restaurants? Well, we'll just deliver the food um, to the home. But did either of you have any doubt that it would work? Or, or was it just a case of, we've got to do something, let's just do it? Yeah, I, I, I can tell you from our side. Before, we, I mean, so, so our, our first product, was, like I said, was, was a chef, was a friend of mine called Farouk Talati. He's actually, his day job is he's head chef at St. John Bread and Wine, but he cooks amazing Parsi food uh, and he runs a supper club in London. So I said to him, let's try and do this. And before we'd sent out the product, even before we put it on sale, both us and him were like, we have no idea whether this is going to work. Like, does anyone actually want this? Like, is it actually going to work in the post? Is the food going to taste the same when it gets to the customer? It was. It felt like a completely crazy idea, and also this idea of you know, Farouk was going to cook all the food, but we were going to do all the logistics for him, so we were going to pack it. And there was a huge amount of that. It, it felt like it felt like real white space. Like no one had. It was true innovation. The moment we put it on sale, I became significantly more relaxed and also more excited. Um, you know, I, I think we had a hundred boxes to sell in the first week, and we sold out within thirty minutes. And then the light bulb went off my head and I was like, this, I think this is really going to work. There's clearly people, and, and one of the things we saw very early on was the majority of our customers live outside of London and they typically live outside of cities. So it's people that love food and people that love food live everywhere. And when I was younger, I, I, I was super into food and cooking. I, I did a, I wanted to become a chef, I did a stage at the Manor at Cat Saison, but I, I lived in a village three hours outside of London. And I know that Loads of people in that village love food, but there are like the access to restaurants and particularly like the variety and depth that we might have in London, you do not have elsewhere. Mm. So we saw that all of these people like the people that you know, I grew up with in my village were ordering this product and they were just ecstatic that they could get this kind of quality and authenticity and variety of food into their home. So the moment that happened, I was a lot more relaxed. We then obviously had to fulfill the product and that wasn't easy. It took us a few weeks and we had a few mishaps. I think everyone's in this space, we had mishaps. Uh, the, the first week, 
we actually, we completely screwed up and um, it's a long story which I won't go into, but we missed the courier that was coming up to pick all of our boxes, 100 boxes. We missed the courier um, and it meant we had to hire four vans and we pulled all our friends in and we drove around the country hand delivering these boxes. I think the final box was delivered at 8 p.m. on Friday in the Lake District. It was... Um, oh, my God. So Guys, I'm going to stop you here. But this is exactly... Pete and I had this conversation when we first signed up to Dishpatch. And honestly, for me, it's, it's this attitude that is really the game changer. Because there's an element of hospitality and there's an element of, you know, caring far more than just the logistics and, and, and getting food on, you know, getting orders, getting... Uh, more expensive orders, increasing the order values and all that kind of stuff. Dishpatch, beyond and above everything else, cares about this experience. And I think there, uh, this is what was lacking in hot food delivery and still continues to, to, you know, to be lacking. This is what we do at the restaurants. We care about people. There's a hospitality at the core of what we do. And I think these guys have been able to do this so well. And that's why, you know, the product has continued. And, you know, others have fallen by the wayside. And, you know, just being able to complement that with great food, Packed with love, I think that's that's the product that was you know born out of it as a winner. But Pete, honestly, this was and and you know you you told me the story. It could have been a sales story, but I've worked with you guys, and it's so true of what you what you do. So hats off to the whole team. Thank you. It's been hard at times, but you know this is the nature of doing something new. Things go wrong, and but we just spend all our time thinking about how we make these things easier. So yeah. I can confirm that we haven't had to hand deliver anything since then, which has been a great relief to me <laughs> and my friends. Which would be possible. <laughs> it, is, it is a nightmare. I, I had to, I mean, when we did our banquet, actually, I, I was sent, I had to drive all the way up to top end of Lancashire to pick something up, which was, which was, yeah, it's not, it's not much fun, even though the roads were, were blessed, uh, blessedly empty. But I mean, um, you've answered loads of questions that I've got written down there, Pete, actually. So, the uptake, there's a lot of uptake from outside of London. But I mean, the restaurants must be finding that's a great way to communicate what they do around the country. I mean, that it, it's, you know, you've got an incredible breadth of choice, it, uh, which, which is really impressive. But I mean, how much involvement uh, do the chefs have in the, not just the creation, obviously they create the meals, but in terms of, because it, it's their, every meal that goes out, it, it's their reputation. So, so how much in, involvement do they have um, and, and this, what kind of stake do they have in that? I mean, it's, it's, as Karen says, it's like a true joint effort. We see this as a true partnership with our restaurants. And the way we think about that is the restaurants own the food and their brand and their DNA. So they are used to serving their food in their restaurants every single day. They understand the experience that they're trying to create. We see our job is like, how do we work with them to take their food and their experience and translate that into something we can put in the post and send across the UK? So the restaurants completely own the food. They completely think about what the end experience is. What we do is sort of guide them through what, what might travel well, what kind of price points customers are looking at in different parts of the country. And then when it comes down to the actual execution, you know, the restaurants cook the food, so it's still their food, but we do all of the logistics. Um, so we do, you know, obviously we run the website and we think about that very, very carefully and, and what the ordering experience looks like. We do all of the packaging. So we take the food from the restaurants, we, we put it in backpacks and everything we need to do to make sure it stays food safe, but also it doesn't break in transit. Um, and then we deal like the whole customer journey from the moment it leaves us to the moment we're sure that it gets to every customer uh, and they're enjoying that meal at home. So it's, it's like, it's a true partnership. It's a true partnership. And that is like 
one of the like that is one of the fundamental parts of what we do and, and something that has always been the case and will never change in the business. You know, I think they've got different working relationships. Pete, you can elaborate on that with, with different partners. But the way we've always worked with them is I will have a conversation with uh, whether it's Panny or Pete or someone else from Dishpatch discussing you know, the next season. Menu is almost like we do at the restaurant. We brainstorm. It's a collaborative effort. We then come up with a couple of menus. Those menus are then cooked in-house and sent to them for market test as well as our teams for a market, for, not for a market test, for taste test. Mm-hmm. We then give combined feedback. Once that's created, our team then does all the bulk cooking. So we create all the food and that's how we, we ensure the quality of the food. And then we pass it on to Pete and his team who then comes and collects it and does all the bits that, you know, they are experts at, whether that's sort of, you know, bulk packaging, packaging food, vacuum packing food. Again, they're, they're grown economies of scale because if we were to do it at the same level, we just wouldn't be able to afford it from a staff point of view, from an equipment point of view. So they've got, you know, state-of-the-art facilities to keep things cool at the right temperature and package them. And they go off and do that and then obviously work on sending it to people. So it's very much a sort of almost like a back of house, front of house divide, as you'd have in a traditional restaurant. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the thing that's intrigued both myself and Alice, because we, we do, uh, we, we spend quite a lot of time sort of talking through uh, this and, 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 and coming up with the questions. But it, it, I've got it, I'm rereading my question, it seems slightly mean, particularly on the back of what you've been saying, Karan, about, and I love the fact that you you supply a QR code for a playlist. I think that's absolutely brilliant. But I mean, at what point do you put yourself at the mercy of the home cook? I mean, because the final stages have to be, you know, have to be finished off. So, I mean, again, it sounds slightly mean. It's certainly not intended that way. But is it a true representation of what the restaurants do? I mean, or does that even, you know, does that even matter? That's the whole point. We've almost created a new product for this. So it's not the idea wasn't to create... Um, to, to try and replicate the restaurant experience because it's not going to be replicable. So the idea was to take elements of the restaurant experience, maybe certain flavors, maybe the music, maybe certain touch points. And that's why we also created this new brand where it feels like the restaurant, but it still feels something different. So it's cash and carry by Hoppers. This is a, a Hoppers inspired meal kit at home. I think the interesting thing about the pan- pandemic was again, you know, you if we had done this sort of thing, you still have, you know, you know, in 2018, 2019, I think there'd be some people, maybe like Pete, maybe like myself, sometimes you want to try something out, but willing to get involved and, and order a kit or two like this. But what the pandemic did was it was like the best marketing opportunity for this. Everyone tried their hand at it. Some of them realized, oh, actually, we're better than we thought. So what would have been 10% of the market has now probably, you know, dropped about 60%. I know friends in the Cotswolds who order our kits every month. And because of our kits, have now started ordering other kits off Dishpatch. And it just made it a habit because whether you like it or not, there's, you know, there are regions in, in the country where there's only so many restaurants you can go to. You can only go to your local pub so many times. And if you want to make an experience, there's still dinner parties are a big thing. And, you know, being able to get these, these meals at home is phenomenal. There is that element. And I think part of it is the fun of it. Like that's the challenge of it. Am I able to cook it right? I have friends send me pictures of food that looks you know, really scary. And, uh, and you know, you, you can't help but have to sort of send, send them a little emoji back, smiling, saying, oh, wow, lovely. Because, uh, but, but the fact that they are happy. So I think it's much more than food. If they got the same food delivered by hot delivery, they would have probably written a complaint. Yeah. But there's an element of 
it was not just about the food. It was the experience of trying to recreate this at home that actually satisfies a lot of people, even before they've tasted the food. We, we think about this a lot, like how much cooking should the customer do versus how much should the restaurant do? And kind of what we've come to is we think the restaurant should do like all the hard bits, the bits that like would either take you a very long time or be really, really hard to replicate at home. So you don't need to be a qualified cook. You don't need to have been doing this for many, many years. You don't need to have any cooking skills at all, in fact. But you do want to put a few processes in there so it feels like you are part of the process. I think that is something that really elevates the experience. Like, it's not just heating something in the microwave. Like, it's not much work. It doesn't take you very long, and there's not much washing up. But having, like, done a little bit yourself and done all the plating, like, you are more invested in that meal and it feels like much more of an experience. So we, we try things where you do more cooking, we try things where you do less cooking. And I, I think the key is like, you don't have to do anything that's hard, but you do do a little bit and that really adds to the experience and, and customers seem to love that. Yeah, I mean, when we did our, uh, we did the banquets, um, I, don't know if you, I don't know if you know, we, we did these, um, the first one especially, I think we had, uh, we, we sold something like eight, 800 kits, but there were actually something like nearly 2,000 people taking part online. I mean, we just had a fantastic response. But then we, you know, we did master, I did master classes on, on olive oil and balsamic and, and, and olives, etc. And I think the thing that, the opportunity it gave us, which, which we were astonished by, because we'd been, because we're based in London, we'd always been very sort of, not, we didn't mean to be, but we were very southerly kind of focused because that's kind of where we had to focus on. But the amount of people uh, from all over the country who were, you know, they were, I wouldn't say desperate for this, but they were really, they were loving the fact that they suddenly they were, you know, they could join in uh, an event uh, that, that wasn't just taking place in the south of England. Uh, just a fantastic experience, a real leveller, I think. Who is the audience? Who is the demographic? Is it, is it just too broad to be able to pin down or is, is there a specific kind of uh, type of general public who, who are buying them? It is broad in the same way that people that eat in restaurants the broad demographic, but we do see some fairly general trends. So firstly, everyone that orders loves food. That's kind of obvious, but like are the kind of people that actually love cooking, even though this isn't really a cooking product. So they're you know, typically very, very keen cooks. You know, they love traveling to London to go out in restaurants. So, you know, they might watch Saturday Kitchen and they get a copy of BBC Good Food magazine. So everyone loves food. I think that's, that's the biggest commonality. The majority of people live outside of London. So we see currently 70% of customers, uh, yeah, they live outside the UK and really everywhere in the UK. I mean, every single week we're sending food to Scotland, to Wales, to Cornwall, you know, absolutely everywhere. They're a bit more of an older demographic. So we have a stat, 85% of our customers are aged over 35 and half are aged over 45. Um, so if you think about hot food delivery, that's all about, you know, selling convenience food to people that are under 35 that live in the city. We're all about sending, you know, experiential food to older people that live outside of London. Yeah, I mean, I, may, I, I get it. It does make sense. I mean, you, you bring kind of families into it and stuff. And, I, I, you know, we've, we've got one, uh, one child and uh, it just it, 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 12 years later, we still forgotten what it's like to be outside. It's just you, you just end up staying in. Um, I, want, I just want to, I just want to change the, the, the sort of just change tack a, a little bit because I'm really aware that we're, we're running out of time and I know you guys have got to get back and, 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 and do your, your real jobs. But um, <clears throat> so we, we've obviously done a few of these now. 
and we've spoke, spoken to School Food Matters, chefs in schools, uh, Jeremy Lee, Jackson Boxer, uh, Rachel Edwards-Stewart. Um, they, they were all very, they, they were basically, they, they all lamented sort of the attitude towards food and education, but also within our society as well. You know, the, the, it's apparent that there's a, a lack of value or a, a cachet uh, towards working in food, but also sort of supplying good food to children. Now, both of you, so Karan, you studied law in Mumbai and at Cambridge, and then you said you worked in the city. Peter, you studied economics at Cambridge as well, yet you've both ended up working with food. Do you find there is a degree of snobbery about having, you know, studied to that level, and but but here you are, running restaurants did, did um, does that question make sense I, I think it would have made sense about 10 years ago maybe when i was looking to move out um it, it would make sense but then you know things like the the sort of growth of food tv the number of shows you have things like you know on netflix the kind of documentaries and and you know food shows you have things like dish batch um, and, and, you know, this whole food delivery, the whole home cooking craze has just made people far more open to it. It's a far sexier sort of field to be in. It's a bit like acting used to be, but it's even more accessible in some ways. I don't think I've ever had this. Um, I've never looked back personally. I can't see myself having done anything else. Um, certainly not stuck around in law. Uh, and um, I think definitely, you know, again, as, as a career changer, I've always used this platform to encourage people. Anytime I have someone who sends me a CV saying, look, I want to get the restaurants, it's the first, first person. I would pick, even if it comes into Hoppers, I will pick up the phone, talk to them myself, bring them in. We're always encouraging people to sort of come in and, and especially learn the front of house side, which is quite neglected. People think restaurants are all about learning how to cook. Uh, and, you know, being in the kitchen, which is where I started, my heart was also there. But I think that front of house side and, you know, curating that whole experience is something that's so exciting. The other thing is also, you know, there are so many avenues open. Earlier it was become a chef, become a manager. Today there are thousands of avenues open. You know, there are people, home cooks who've started doing food delivery, who've started doing uh, you know, uh, dispatches sort of. Um, Pete, you can talk about that, but, you know, you're you're really sort of, uh, put in the spotlight a lot of uh, new upcoming chefs who might not have restaurants. You don't need to open a restaurant of your own. You can do supper clubs. You can do various other things. So there is a lot more in the food world as there is generally in the world. There are more opportunities and more niches. And um, I think that's just made it a lot more accessible and a lot cooler to join the industry. So, no, I don't think that's snobbery. I think there might be elements. There might be that super high-end you know, food society sort of really high-end restaurants where everyone's sort of trained for years and years where it's still harder to make a breakthrough. But even there, you're seeing people who have not necessarily come in from a, from a classical background making a name. Mm -hmm. Pete? Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with Karen. I left my job in consulting, I think, 11 years ago. And at the time, people that I worked with were kind of like, you were a little bit crazy. I didn't really have any, I didn't really, I knew, I mean, I've always been obsessed with food. I wanted to become a chef when I was younger. I spent every weekend working in a local restaurant. I did stages at Michelin Star restaurant. So like, I've always been obsessed with food and a little bit of current. I can't imagine doing anything other than working in food and working with people that like are as passionate as I am about these kind of things. So th there was never, 
it was never going to work out any differently for me. Um, I, I think certainly if you look 11 years ago, the food industry was very different than it is today. You know, this was the kind of one when Polpo had just opened, um, you know, the, the sort of better burger craze was just started. And I think food was becoming a lot more democratic. It wasn't just about Michelin-starred restaurants with white tablecloths. Like, that was no longer the pinnacle of food. It was all about people doing much more accessible food at a significantly better and higher quality. Um, so things have definitely changed, uh, you know, and I think Karen's absolutely right. There are a lot more opportunities now. I think if you look back 10, 15 years ago, if you wanted to move into restaurants, you either had to own a restaurant or you had to work in a restaurant. I think particularly with social media, there are so many ways, especially for people who are creative, to start doing amazing things and get the word out there, get their food out there. You know, and certainly we're, seeing, we're working with you know, people on our platform who do not have a restaurant. Um, and have made their name through social media and they, they cook amazing, um, unique food, you know, people like Easter Balfrage and, and, and those are different routes in. Um, but I think ultimately, if you love food, you're not going to do anything else. And there's so many opportunities to, to do cool things right now. Well, I, I want to come on to, to that in a second, what you, what you just touched upon. But it, it's just suddenly struck me, just chatting to you through all our other conversations, it does feel like the last, I don't know, six, seven years, maybe even eight, there's a kind of punk element come into the, the food industry where, you know, the, the ethos of punk being you could learn three chords and, and that's all you need. And, and, I, and I think there's, and I'm not suggesting for one second that the, the, the food that people are, uh, a cooking is substandard, simply that the, all that weight of experience is along the way and I think I've got something. It's, it's really interesting kind of listening to you, um, sort of, well I'm putting it like that, but that's kind of what I, I picked up from it. So for both of you then, definitely it was always food first, economics and law second. Yeah, I mean 100% from my side, I really wanted to become a chef, I wasn't going to go to university. Um, Parents were like, well, you know, maybe you should do that. It's a good backup. I don't really listen to my parents, but I did listen to them in this case. So I yeah, went off for a few years, worked in consulting, but I, I looked at my, you know, the people that I was reporting into and my boss, I was like, I do not want to be those people. I, and, and, and again, it, this was at the time when social media was just starting. So Twitter was just taking place. The food community was, was um, growing on that platform. And I began to see like so many interesting things that were happening. And I was like, I just have to be in this community. I have to be in this game. And I actually started off, I started running events. Uh, initially, I used to run a big charity event and that was my way of just getting involved in the industry and spending time around chefs and restaurants, doing things that I, I found like were, like were really interesting from a food perspective. Um, and then I moved from that. Correct. I think very similar with me as well. Like I can remember sort of being obsessed with food. Um, all my life, I, I used to be in the kitchen at home, even when I was sort of three and four back in Mumbai. Um, food and dining would always be the most exciting part of a holiday, would be the most exciting part of, of a day. Um, I think, I guess, there was that bit about, so what do I do with food? And again, you know, like Pete says, I grew up, um, I grew up in an Indian family and, you know, in an Indian professional family, I come from a family of doctors where... Um, you know, the only acceptable professions, although my family is quite, you know, they were very supportive of this move when I eventually made it. But to begin with is is engineering, law, um, or medicine. And, you know, if you're really artistic, you do architecture, but you don't do anything more than that. So I kind of went for a safe choice. I said, okay, let's get a good grounding. I kind of knew when I was doing law, both the degrees, ironically, that this is not going to be long-term. 
but again, you know, I, I don't regret it because everything, you know, forges a path. I wouldn't have been, say, in the UK without that. I might not have met my uh, my wife, might not have come up with the ideas or seen the world the way I have had I not done that side of things. So it was cool. The one bit when, you know, things were were tricky was that point when I was sort of seeing very, I, I, I was, I knew what I'm going to be giving up uh, in terms of a very stable, uh, lucrative career at a law firm. Um to do something that was quite sort of ambiguous at that point where, you know, I knew I wanted to do something with food, but never really knew what exactly, you know, you have chefs who started 12, 13, you know, training in kitchens. And I was way past that. So that made me fairly nervous, but luckily again, you know, I was um, fortunate, met the right people, worked with some really good people back in India, as well as here, had some great experiences and, um, and, you know, find myself where I am today. The spotlight element of of Dishpatch, which is well, you will you tell us what spotlight is? Yeah, so the spotlight, in short, is um, so we're we're doing a set of limited edition restaurant meal kits, but instead of working with established restaurants, we're working with chefs or supper clubs who don't currently have a restaurant. That's what it is in short. It's a series. We're doing six different menus. I think we're on our fourth at the moment. Uh, each is available for one month only. I guess the thesis behind this was. You know, one of the reasons we start Dish Match is that we are, we love, everyone in this business loves the restaurant industry and everything about, you know, the food scene in London. One of the things that we find really, really exciting is not just going to, you know, a big, really well-known restaurant or a fancy restaurant, but also exploring kind of who's new in the scene and, and who's really up and coming. So going to supper clubs or getting something for deli- delivered from someone who's like cooking food in their house. And we really wanted to share that with many more people and all the customers that live outside of London that use Dispatch. And we also wanted to give these kind of people a national platform um, and, and introduce them to uh, the kind of people that enjoy our food. So that's our spotlight formed and yeah like i said we, we've worked with some really great people who started with ling lings who do amazing regional chinese food i think our current menu is is rubens uh, this is amazing sort of 19 year old guy who cooks smoked meat tacos in his back garden um obviously we've we sorted him out with some kitchen space and we've helped him to <laughs> operationalize his garden was a little bit too small for the kind of quantities we're doing and yeah and we really help these people um you know to, to create a kit that works uh, to that works on our platform but yeah it's really all about telling their story and allowing people to experience like those parts of the food scene not just going to a restaurant that they you know they may have heard of or they may read about in the paper yeah you see street food's fascinating because i i think we have uh i don't even know if there ever really was a, a street food scene in in this country not in the same way that you get uh, in in India and on, and on the continent, and and there is something incredibly exciting about amazing street food. And um, I mean, do you think that well, do you think that that is here to stay, street food? That it's just going to grow and grow and grow. Uh, but just but also briefly, uh, Pete, why why have you why have you chosen to spotlight these uh, these new talents? So I mean, the, the specific people we look for, we really look for, and this actually doesn't just apply to Spotlight, it applies to every single restaurant or chef on our platform. We look for personal authenticity. And what we mean by that is people that are cooking, obviously great food and stuff that's really, really tasty, but stuff that is unique to them and it's food from their heart. So a lot of the people we work with, they, they don't just cook 
through that they've seen someone else cooking, they have a story and reason for doing what they do, which is a mixture of their heritage, which is a mixture of, you know, who they may have worked with previously. So that's kind of the lens that we use. Um, and we've had a lot of fun, like we spend a lot of time in supper clubs and trying food from these people. And yeah, if we think they're personally authentic and ultimately we think the food tastes really well, it's going to work well on our platform, then we'll chat to them and see if they're up for doing it. Not everyone is, but but certainly we've had great uptake and it's really, really worked for, for both of us. And, but, and, and, and why, but why have you just, just, you just want to see these people coming through. You just want to offer that little bit of extra support just to, uh, just to give them that leg up, if you like. That, that's that's the, the reason for doing it. Yeah, exactly. It, it's in, in the same way that doing this with, you know, Hoppers, it works for the restaurant. It allows them to access more customers. It works for people that live across the UK. It allows them to taste their food. It's exactly the same with these chefs. So we allow someone that you know lives in my village in Gloucester to try food from a completely unknown chef or someone that's got a pretty small following that might have a supper club once a month in East London. They would never have the opportunity to do that. And it gives the opportunity for these people to get more exposure that's why we use the word spotlight to shine a spotlight on the food yeah. they're doing. Oh, definitely. I mean, that's been one of the incredible things about, about the pandemic. Even, I mean, I live out near Watford and there's, there's, there was a guy called Tom who opened a, a place called Vincenzo's in, in the back of a pub. And he, uh, his, his inspiration was uh, American pizzerias, but really good ones. And he's, he's now come out of the pub and I see from Instagram, he's now traveling again, getting more experience, and he's about to open his first place in, in Watford itself. I mean, it just, as I said, it comes down to the idea, it's almost punk-like, the fact that it's just, well, I'm just gonna do it my way, and, and that is it. Um, but Karan, I, I just wanna give you the time, because you, you mentioned some charity, uh, uh, some charity work, or some charity um, that you'd been involved with. What, what is that, and how is that connected to the restaurant? Doing a charitable sort of, uh, you know, charity has always been a very important pillar of what we do at the restaurant. Over the years, we've tried to link it as much as possible to South India or Sri Lanka. Again, because, you know, it's it's about going around full circle. We've taken, you know, we take inspiration from there. We represent a culture there. And it's nice to sort of be able to give back. Um, I'm sure you guys have read in the news. I know sort of, you know, the, the, the war in Ukraine has taken over a lot of the news and it's one of the biggest sort of causes out there for people to contribute to. But there's also sort of, there's this horrendous situation in Sri Lanka at the moment, which was, you know, mainly political, but led to a massive sort of economic crisis as well. Um, and we view this as, you know, as something that is not going to go away soon um unfortunately you know it's really put pressure on some of the poorest families there they have you know eight hour power cuts they've got a lack of fuel schools are shut because of you know printing they're not able to print exams are cancelled schools are shut newspapers are, have been taken off because they can't print um and uh, due to shortages and um it's a really horrible situation the the rupee has fallen massively in value as well and I think, you know, so while we were supporting various charities in the past, and, you know, even up to recently, we were supporting this uh, environmental charity in Sri Lanka, we quickly pivoted to um, working with a local partner, the large company that has a really good outreach arm, which is you know part of their CSR, but it's been something they've been doing for 20 years, very well reputed, squeaky clean, completely transparent, we're working with them to reach, you know, they've got an organization within this outreach fund. They've got an organization about 69 schools across the country, preschools. 
where they'll uh, sort of build and look after these schools. Now we've gone in and we've tried to do these ration packages for children. So it's it's crazy, but um, you know it costs about twenty or twenty five pounds, depending on the exchange rate, to provide a full pack of rations for a family of four that that you know uh, will last about a week. That's the maths we've done. So we're trying to find as many sort of opportunities to collect some money. There's also a just giving page we've set up, so people can go directly to that if they're not dining at the restaurants or buying dish patch. Basically, we're looking to collect you know upwards of ten thousand pounds a month which can then go be sent to Sri Lanka. The, these packages will be bought for these school children. We'll identify schools, entire schools, so we're not giving it to some and not giving it to others. So entire schools will be identified. We'll make a list of kids. We'll give it to the local supermarket. We'll then buy the products from the supermarket. They use their logistics to supply these packages to the local supermarket where the kids can go with their parents and a voucher and pick up these things. So we're trying to reduce admin cost. It's all volunteer. So it's all driven by HIMAS Outreach Fund on the ground. So we don't pay any salaries. We try and pay as little of the logistic cost that you'd imagine, you know, one would pay transporting food across the country and make sure that every penny in that pound reaches this uh, charity. Something I'm very excited about. Obviously, in the short term, it's to feed kids who are whose families are impacted directly by the crisis, which, you know, again, I don't see is going away in a month or two. It'll last for at least a year or two to come, if not longer. Um, but in the long term, we want to turn this into um, the sort of midday meal program you see in schools here, um, sort of feeding and educating children about food and continue to do sort of support the, the, the weakest and hungriest in the country. That's so amazing. it's something we are very proud of. We put together in you know in a month's time with a lot of people really working around the block uh, in difficult times. Uh, but yeah. it's it's out there now. We've announced it. Uh, it's called Feeding the Future, and it's in partnership with Hema's Outreach Fund in Sri Lanka. So Feeding the Future, and and, what, and what's your Just Giving page? What, 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 is that called Feeding the Future as well? The the link is on our website. It's um, on your website. If you go to hopperslondon.com, it's on the website there. There's a lot more information up there as well. So please do Fun. visit. And Fun. You know, if yeah. you're at the restaurants, obviously, we'll be doing our bit as well. Yeah, and best to look with that. It, it, it sounds like a, a, fan, a, a fantastic charity. It really does. Um, Thank you. Look, um, we've 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 come. I I just get the feeling we could probably uh, natter on for quite a while. There's there's an awful lot here uh, to talk about, but we have come to the. I'm going to start with Karam. You you do like a collaboration. I was going to ask you about this, and you did kind of touch touch upon it. But you, you've you've collaborated with uh, breweries, and but if you could collaborate with anyone you like, who and what would you make? God, uh, <laughs> I hate questions. I hate this. Quick, <laughs> actually, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna be cheeky, and I'm gonna look back. We actually we did this already. We did a collaboration burger with Shake Shack in December. It's something I was, I know the entire team there. I already mentioned Danny, uh, Mark Rosati, their culinary director is a really good friend. And it was something I was badgering them for three, four odd years ever since we met. And they were keen on it. But again, it was the pandemic that got us talking and said, let's just get out of our comfort zone, do something different. We did that burger collaboration, which was honestly one of the best burgers I have ever eaten. Uh, it was amazing fun. It was in Covent Garden for two days. The reason I talk about this is uh, I'm presently twisting their arm to do the same thing back in New York. 
So for me, that collaboration was phenomenal. But then there's so much talent out there. There's so many incredible chefs, you know, the guys who are on Spotlight, Easter, uh, Tom Straker, some of the others who are just doing so much exciting stuff. The world's your oyster if you're willing to go out there, you know, be humble enough and cook and, you know, combine styles. There's so much stuff you can do. Pete, so if you, uh, a similar question, if you could get anyone globally to provide some dishes for Dish Patch, don't worry about distance or anything, who would that be? Oh, good question. Do you know what? I thought you were going to ask me this question. And this is an equally, it's a bit like saying, what's your favourite restaurant? And there's like, I know, I know. There's, it's no one, there's no one answer to this. I can give you a roundabout answer. Like, let me Go give you a on. roundabout answer. I don't think I could pull out one person specifically. I think one of the things that we're really interested in right now is people whose food, like, you cannot get anywhere. So, you know, like I said, we've, we've been doing a really interesting um, milk at Easter Bell Fries. Like she doesn't have a restaurant. She has something that's really, really unique. So we'd love to do a few more of them. We're in some really interesting discussions. So these are people that might have made their name on TikTok or Instagram. You know, as Karen said, like the Thomas Strakers and the big houses of the world. Those kind of people, like I love the idea of being able to create something that doesn't exist anywhere. I'm not sure I can name one person, but like, that's kind of what we're interested in. No, that, that's fair. I, I do realise they're, they're a little bit cruel. I'm, I'm not trying to, uh, I'm really not trying to quick create uh, waves for you within the industry. It's just, uh, <laughs> it's kind of interesting to find out. Look, we've, we've run out of time. I mean, we've gone well over an hour. Thank you both so much. Um, so I just want to say, uh, so thank you very much to Peter Butler from Dishpatch. Pleasure, great uh, to be on. Thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure. And to Karanga Kani from Hopper's Restaurant. Thank you both so much. Thank you, guys. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to leave a rating and review. We'd really appreciate you taking the time to let us know what you think. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and LinkedIn, or go to bellazoo.com. Thank you very much for listening and hope you can join us next time. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.